0: Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. That is not a description of what just happened between me and my wife. No, it's an expression. It's an expression you've heard, out of the frying pan and into the fire. It means to go from a bad situation into a situation that's even worse. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. It's actually, one could argue, a fitting description of what happens next as you're finding that passage, our next passage in the Gospel of Luke. As you're getting there, Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Last time, Jesus and his 12 disciples had just come through a great tempest raging over the Sea of Galilee. If you remember that story, if you weren't with us, on their way across the lake... As Jesus slept in the hull, an unexpected and violent storm descended upon them and nearly capsized their boat. As these experienced fishermen turned disciples became convinced they were going to drown, they roused Jesus from his deep sleep, and it's they who end up getting a wake-up call. As with a word, Jesus rebukes the wind and calms the sea and opens the eyes of his followers to see who he is, the Lord of all creation. In the stillness of that revelation, in the reclamation of their faith, which had momentarily been lost thanks to that storm, darkness begins to give way to sunrise as a new day dawns. But as Jesus and his disciples reach the shore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they find themselves trading one tempest for another as they face not a raging squall all around them in the wind and the waves, but a different kind of storm altogether." A disturbance in human nature. Like something out of a modern day scary movie, Jesus steps out onto land and immediately confronts a naked, wild eyed madman, maniacally shrieking and running toward him. And with that ominous introduction, let us listen to Luke chapter 8, verse 26 to 39. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, And told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A crazed, howling figure marked by the look and stench of death approaches Jesus as he exits the boat and looks something again like a monster. But he's not a monster. He's just a man. He's a man, as you heard, without any clothes. A man who wanders around naked as the day he was born. He's a man without a home, who had once been under house arrest, but being unable to restrain himself, eventually was driven out of town. He's a man without any peace, who in his solitary confinement aimlessly roams among the tombs, the graveyard just outside the city, ghoulishly moaning in anguish day after day and night after night. He is a man without a name who has been living this way for such a long time, he has lost his identity, finding himself either unable or un- will- unable to answer or to remember who he is when asked by Jesus. He is a man without any freedom, who is living in bondage, being held hostage, as he is possessed not just by one, but by a legion of demonic spirits. Now the first elephant in the room, and there's a couple in this passage, is that perhaps the reference to demons makes us uncomfortable, or worse, dismissive of this story. Because the modern human tendency is to sit in one of two extremes when it comes to any biblical reference to the demonic. We either sit in the extreme of outright rejection or unhealthy fixation. Many dismiss notions, such notions of the demonic as reflections of a primitive, unenlightened worldview, much like belief in a flat world or belief in the planets revolving around the earth rather than the sun. As we hear Jesus' talk, or the people of Jesus' day talk of demonic possession, we rationalize such sufferings as being the result of medical or sociological causes. And while there is truth... There is truth that modern science can and has accounted for much of what we didn't first understand, things such as mental illness or psychological stress and trauma. While that's true, we ought not to entirely discount both the reality and the influence of manifestations of evil that go beyond any scientific explanation or natural causes. We misread this story if we simply rationalize what happened here. For this encounter powerfully affirms the reality of the demonic, of the supernatural, of adversarial forces, what the Bible calls principalities and powers at work in this world in opposition to God. And regardless of how modern or enlightened we believe we have become, we still witness today undeniable evidence of postures and actions that are so overwhelmingly malicious and contemptuous We cannot but classify them not merely as bad, but downright evil. I'm talking about forces and embodiments of oppression and injustice that pull us towards death rather than foster life. The same face of evil, the same pull towards death we witnessed unleashed upon the poor man in this passage can be seen today in people and communities held in physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual bondage. Principalities and powers that take root in ideologies and manifest themselves via practices that strip away human dignity and violate personhood, that erode civility and poison fellowship, that isolate, alienate, and deny others the protections and freedoms God demands to be afforded to all of his children regardless of nationality, ethnicity, gender, age, or creed. Now that's one extreme. But at the same time, we must be mindful of the other extreme that we can take, which is becoming overly preoccupied with the demonic. Such an obsession rears its ugly head when we find ourselves looking for and blaming the devil for everything that's wrong in our lives, instead of taking any personal responsibility for our choices and actions. An unhealthy fixation on the demonic leads us to adopt and even perpetuate a cynical or pessimistic view where we end up giving the forces of evil greater influence and dominance in our lives than the sovereignty of the love and grace of Christ. And again, while this encounter in Luke affirms not the superstition but the reality of the demonic, it also reinforces Jesus' presence and power both to end and heal the forces of evil that occupy and control us, those powers that seek to destroy rather than promote life. Something that Luke also makes clear in his description of this tortured soul, this naked, unrestrained, howling man keeping company among the dead rather than the living, is what an uncontrollable and frightening presence he is. It's not hard to imagine this demon, demonic, possess, demonically possessed man was so terrifying of a presence that everyone in the town worked really hard to go out of their way, to take a more roundabout or longer path to get wherever they needed to be in order to avoid running into him. But Jesus doesn't hesitate, Jesus doesn't look for the nearest exit. Jesus doesn't try to find a way around entering into hostile territory, a haunted community, this hellish imprisonment of a lost soul. No, as Jesus encounters this deranged, tortured, and persecuted man, once again we witness there is no place in all creation that God will not go, that God will not reclaim from the forces of evil. Jesus does not hesitate even though he is greatly outnumbered. Greatly outnumbered. After all, while we've witnessed before Jesus exercise individual demons, this time, did you notice, it's one against thousands. It's one against thousands. For when Jesus tries to ask this poor man his name, it's the demonic power holding him captive which speaks and answers legion. And a legion is roughly 6,000 Roman soldiers. But more than a name, it's an indication of the force, of the weight of the darkness oppressing this man and the increased challenge before Jesus as he faces the exorcism of not one unclean spirit, but a horde of the demonic. But from the very start, even with their greater numbers, notice how this legion of demons immediately capitulates, throwing this man, their captor, to the ground at Jesus' feet. It's a defiant but forced posture of obedience, of worship. The acknowledgement of the one who is greater than their thousands, their collective company. Recognizing the authority and power of the one who stands before them as they cry out, you are Jesus, the son of the most high God. This battalion of demons beg Jesus not to torture them, not to consign them to the abyss. The abyss, back to the underworld, in other words, back to the Old Testament abode of the dead. If you were to turn to the book of Revelation, the abyss is the inevitable destiny, the final state to which all forces opposed to God will be condemned, the state of non-existence. Instead of being cast into the abyss, these unclean spirits seek refuge in unclean animals as the demons plead and Jesus relents in allowing them to enter into a herd of pigs. And as the demons quickly take residence in the swine, the power of evil is revealed for what it is, for what it ultimately does, as this enormous herd of pigs is driven mad, goes off the cliff and is devoured by death, drowning. Here's again another elephant in the room. We need to pause for a moment, I think, to acknowledge that this story, this incident, can raise many questions for us. I'll just name two. Can animals be possessed by demons? Maybe you might be asking this question, how could Jesus treat animals like this, allowing this herd of pigs to meet their doom? These questions aren't answered for us. I don't have answers. I know they're there. At best, what we can infer from this bizarre, disturbing scene is this, the removal of evil is not without cost or sacrifice. I mean, purging the stranglehold that the iniquity of sin, the devil, and death have on this beautiful but broken creation will result in more than the offering of a herd of pigs. It will require the giving of God's own life through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. The point is, we must not let our questions, we must not let our confusion, we must not even let our offense, perhaps, over the fate of these animals cause us to miss the most horrifying part of this story. Now, I won't take a poll, but if you've ever watched a scary movie, if you've ever watched a scary movie, there's always in a scary movie what's known as a final jump scare near the end of the film. If you've seen a scary movie, you know what I'm talking about. The menacing evil has been defeated. At last, the threat is over. Everyone is safe and sound, or so it appears. Until suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, the monster that appeared dead makes one last grasping effort to take hold of its victims. My friends, this scary story in Luke is no different. A once tortured soul, this demon-possessed man who had become dispossessed by his neighbors, has been healed and set free. The shadow of death hanging over this community has been lifted For there is no longer anything or anyone to fear in the countryside surrounding the town. And so, as the townspeople receive word about what has happened and come out to meet Jesus, we expect this encounter to end with a joyous note of thanksgiving and celebration. However, this is not the reaction of the neighborhood. Luke tells us, instead of gushing with pride rushing with praise for Jesus at the sight of their fellow citizen made well. The entire community is so overcome by fear of Jesus, they ask him to leave. Instead of being given the key to the city, Jesus has shown his way to the door. Much like the demons that previously begged Jesus to leave them alone, the townspeople begged Jesus pretty much to do the same thing. They want Jesus gone. Not next week, not tomorrow, now. And to be clear, the fear exhibited by this town is a negative fear. Not all fear is negative. Not all fear is bad. Fear can be healthy. Healthy fear is reflexive. It's a proper response to an overwhelming or threatening situation. It's a proper response because it leads us to take proper care, to take suitable caution, and thus protect us from harm. Healthy fear when it comes to encountering God is to be filled with awe, wonder, and humbling perspective before the revelation of being in the presence and power of the creator of all things, the God who is greater than any of us. Healthy fear leads to the receptivity of faith. Being more open to the possibility and promise of what God can do. Negative fear, however, the kind exhibited by this crowd, does not lead to faith. Negative fear rejects faith. If faith is a gift, which is what the Bible says it is, faith is a gift, not something we manifest within ourselves. If faith is a gift that God seeks to give to us, if faith is a gift, what the townspeople basically say to Jesus is, no thank you, now please leave. No, thank you. Now please leave. And therefore, Jesus, who does not force himself upon us, Christ, who does not stay where he is not wanted, departs. In Luke's gospel, at least, Jesus steps for the first and last time into Gentile territory. This is the only healing Christ does in this part of Israel. As this story concludes, Jesus sails away, As the folks of this town go back home unchanged. Having rejected Christ, a whole community goes back to its life without Jesus. And if we don't find that scary, then we're missing the bottom line of this dramatic and disturbing encounter. For God's sake, why does this happen? Why does this happen? What do we suppose they were all so afraid of? Some have speculated that the fear of the townspeople was based on economic loss. I mean, with the sight of all those dead pigs floating in the water, maybe even now washing up on the shore. Mark's account of this story actually tells us there were more than 2,000 swine that drowned that day. And that represents a bit of a financial hit to the community. Could be economic loss, but neither Mark nor Luke nor even Matthew in his version clearly indicate that this is the specific basis of their fear. Unbelief can be hard to reconcile sometimes. And yet, at least in a general sense, it seems clear the fear of these townspeople had something to do with being concerned about the disruption of their lives and their community. To say it more pointedly, if we really know who Jesus is, if we truly understand why Christ came, Jesus can scare the hell out of us. What I mean is, we're fine, most of us. We're fine. We're all well and good with Christ saving us. But if we're honest, we're not all that interested and frankly more than a little freaked out by the assertion that Jesus comes to fundamentally change us. That Jesus comes to radically turn our lives and our perfect little worlds upside down. Jesus scares the hell out of us. I mean, isn't that what much of contemporary evangelism is based on? Isn't that what most of contemporary evangelism is based on, the fear of going to hell? Resolving any uncertainty about knowing where we'll be when we die? If you were to die today, do you know where you'd be? How many of you came to faith based on that line? That's the extent I'm sad to say, of the gospel message that many so-called Christians have embraced. Divine rescue, ultimate forgiveness, and eternal security. But if that's as far as the gospel goes, if that's as far as the gospel goes, knowing that you're not going to hell, knowing that when you die, you're gonna see the pearly gates of heaven, if that's as far as the gospel goes, people hear me, then all we ask, all we expect of Jesus is to make good, For him to grant us our heavenly pardon when our time comes. And between now and then, the unknown date of our death, all we ask, all we expect of Jesus is to make good on his promissory note to us to ensure we cross the finish line. Again, we're quite comfortable with Jesus coming to save us, swooping in and rescuing us whenever we need it, when we reach the end of our rope, when we find ourselves in a jam, but otherwise... We would prefer Jesus leave us alone. Let us live our lives otherwise undisturbed. We've all prayed for Jesus to save us. I assume that's the case because we're all here. We've all prayed for Jesus to save us, but when's the last time you prayed for Jesus to change you? When's the last time it occurred to you that changing you is actually what Jesus seeks to do in you? man, the evangelism we sell is Jesus wants to save us. And that is most certainly true. But we forget to mention to people, Jesus also wants to change us. Because that's the one where people will go, you know what, pass. Like to be saved, don't want to be changed. Love getting out of trouble, don't want to avoid trouble. When's the last time it occurred to you that changing you is actually what Jesus seeks to do in you? That Jesus came to shift your thinking to transform your attitude, to clean up how you talk, to adjust to how you react, how you engage, how you treat others. My friends, there are so many so-called believers who continue to settle, who continue to persist in trying to limit Jesus to being the God who can save them but not change them, The God who will save them but not alter their self-made world. And this has contributed to much of the hypocrisy and ill will attributed to the church today. As we have so many so-called Christians who profess to be forgiven, praise Jesus, forgiven, but refuse to let Jesus lead them to forgive others. So many Christians who appeal to the blessings of God when it comes to their own loss or misfortune. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. They'll appeal to the blessings of God when it comes to their own loss or misfortune, but then they will deny Jesus from cultivating any sense of compassion or generosity in them for those most in need. So many so-called Christians who boast and sing of the grace of God, his amazing grace. There's amazing grace shown to them in their own personal weakness and sin, only to turn around, to turn away from following Jesus as they have no grace to give to those whom they judge and condemn as their enemies. Now it's getting scary, right? Beloved, if Jesus were to show up unannounced today, Today, in our lives, as we go about our business, as we gather for worship, do we assume that Christ would ever and only smile and bless everything we're saying and doing? Again, when's the last time we even considered what Jesus might have to say, let alone what Jesus might seek to overturn and change in terms of how we speak and represent him to others? In terms of the socio-political stances we take, we advocate for, we vote on. The ways that we interact and view others, particularly those, again, whom we dislike or disagree. Is it that hard to imagine that if Jesus really did show up right now, how unsettling it would be for us? Just how much his presence, let alone his words, would reveal how significantly out of alignment we are with his way, with his truth, with his life. Something I find fascinating notice in this story, the people have no problem with their former neighbor, the once demon possessed man, being changed. Did you catch that? They don't ask him to leave town along with Jesus, he can stay. He could say, he can be transformed, but that's as far as it goes. They don't perceive their need to be changed by Jesus. For again, what they fear is where and how Jesus might upend their lives, their community. They fail to see themselves, to see their story in this man, in their neighbor's story. And, beloved, are we any different? Do we recognize our story is this man's story? All the people that we pity, all the people that we look at, oh my gosh, look at them, what a train wreck they are, what a mess they are. Do we see ourselves in their story or do we go, man, I'm so glad that's not me? Are we like the townspeople, seeing ourselves as spectators, just another face in the crowd? Yes, by all means, God, change them. They need to be changed. Yes, change them. Me? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. We may not be possessed by a legion of evil spirits, but if we can recognize and name all those influences and forces that have captured us, that have prevented us from becoming what God intends us to be, things like unbridled pride, obsessive jealousy or envy, cancerous bitterness, bigotry, divisiveness, contempt, uncontrollable and wrathful rage, violent tendencies, wanton lust, gluttony or greed, any manner of addiction or self-destructive behavior. If we can recognize and name all those influences and forces that have captured and prevented us from becoming what God intends us to be, then we all have our demons, don't we? Beloved, our particular stories may not be the same, but we are all this man. Because apart from the word of God, the coming of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not. We can never be our true, full, best selves. We may not have 6,000 demons making themselves comfortable in our lives, God forbid, But left to our own devices, on our own, we remain nonetheless in the dark, unable to restrain ourselves, continuing to reopen old wounds even as we keep creating new ones in our lives, living as oppressed captives to our own desires, so consumed with ourselves, so consumed with creating and maintaining our image, our brand, our success, deep down, We can't help but look at everyone else ultimately as competition rather than as community. And so even as we live together with family, friends, and neighbors singing kumbaya, even as we live together, we're living apart, driven by our constant anxiety, our growing insecurity, or worse, our deepening apathy and indifference. And so we end up functionally living in isolation from each other, even isolation from ourselves. Beloved, the picture, the before and after picture of the man in this story is a picture of our life apart from Jesus. What it's like and where it leads. But it's also a reflection of what happens when we encounter Jesus and he changes us. We are transformed like this man from being tortured souls, the walking dead, ghosts or shells of who we were created to be into becoming true and complete human beings. Some of you are not really paying attention right now and you really need to. Some of you are somewhere else, and you need to be here. Because this picture is the picture that God desires for all of us. The change that we see in this man is what God desires for all of his children. Listen to Luke's description of this once tormented man on the other side of his transformation thanks to Jesus. Jesus heals and transforms this man in every way possible, physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual. Luke says he was sitting, completely dressed, and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. Once naked, this man is now clothed. Once idly roaming, unable to stay in one place to associate peacefully with others, this man now sits still, At the feet of Jesus, once tormented, continually crying out in a loud voice and wanting nothing to do with Christ, he is now of sound mind and comfortable in the presence of Jesus in a receptive posture of learning as he sits at his feet, Beloved, hear this this morning. The gospel isn't that Jesus only comes to save us when we cry out for help in this life or when death finally comes for us. No, the gospel is Jesus saves us by changing us, by transforming us into who we were created to be, whole rather than fractured selves and communities, the best and yet unrealized version of who we can be together. Jesus changes us by cleansing and restoring us, bringing we who were once dead in our sin back to life, by taking we who expose ourselves as defiant enemies of God and clothing us with a new heart and a right mind, leading us back home. And yet despite this, and that's why again I'm calling everybody to be listening right now, Because despite this, the invitation of the full gospel, as we learn through this story, through the people of this town, despite this, what we learn is sometimes the devil you know is better than the Messiah you don't. Because if we really know Jesus, if we truly understand what Christ is all about, he's too powerful. He's too significant. He's too much of a life changer. Because once again, Jesus is not content to simply bail us out of whatever trouble we get into. But Jesus actually purposes to release us, to set us free from the source of trouble we keep getting into. You know? From those old habits that die hard. You know, from those long established but still unhealthy thoughts and feelings and patterns of living. From our limited ways of seeing and engaging the world around us. But being resurrected to a new way of living today, not when we physically expire, but being resurrected to a new way of living today rather than just waiting to go to heaven when you die means dying to yourself now, and that's pretty scary. And yet, as crazy as it sounds, and it's insane, sometimes the terror we know is more tolerable than the peace we cannot imagine. It can be easier, right? It can be easier to hold on to the pain we've grown accustomed to, to the suffering we've learned how to deal with, rather than experiencing the tension that comes from being changed, the disruption of being transformed. Sometimes it's easier to believe what we tell ourselves or what others tell us that we cannot change. And to use that lie as an excuse to hold on to that anger, to hold on to that prejudice, to hold on to that addiction, to hold on to that bias, to hold on to that envy, to hold on to that jealousy, to hold on to that hatred, rather than to yield to the truth that Jesus comes, Christ promises to change us. We can convince ourselves. We can convince ourselves it's easier to stay the same, even if the same is not all that great. Rather than to let Jesus all the way into our lives, let Jesus all the way into our lives and reveal to us this or that truth that we just as soon would not know, that truth about the kind of life we're living, that truth about the sort of company we're keeping, that truth about the world, the bubble that we falsely created about ourselves. But my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not shy away today from learning and benefiting from the hard lesson of this town, this community of people that basically commit suicide by purposely throwing themselves into chaos, by forcibly drowning themselves like the swine, by willingly cutting themselves off from the only source of life, the full, abundant, and everlasting life that we can only find in Jesus Christ. Let us together become the seed of hope that Jesus leaves behind as he sets sail. What? I thought this was a horror story. What hope? Initially, the healed man begs to depart with Jesus, to leave behind the people who have rejected Christ. Jesus, you remember, however, tells this man, no, go to your family, go to your home. This man is sent to be restored to his family, yes, But this man is also being sent to bring restoration to his family. The restorative power of Jesus. The restoration the kingdom of God brings. Even though Jesus doesn't stay to help the people of this town because they're so afraid of him, he leaves behind a witness for everyone who has initially rejected him. Jesus leaves behind a living testimony to the truth that evil can and will prevail. Cannot prevail over God's freedom. And so a glimmer of hope, a seed of promise remains for this town in the faithful obedience and discipleship of this man. As this whole episode dramatically reveals, the word of God brings life. And so Christ's mission across the lake is not without fruit. As Jesus gains one disciple. One disciple, the guy who was known as the village idiot, the local crazy man, The troubled and dangerous demoniac becomes one of the first missionaries to the Gentiles. Luke's reporting of this event ends with a powerful footnote. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus instructs this man not just to share the miracle with others, but to preach, to talk about, to point to what those miracles signify that God is in control, that God keeps his promises that sin, death, and the devil will not endure forever. They've got nothing on us. Beloved, that's our calling. That's our commission as disciples too. That's the mark. That's the indicator that we're following Jesus. That's the kind of change Jesus comes to bring in every human life to transform each one of us from being harbingers of doom and gloom into visible and tangible reflections, witnesses of the power of God's unconditional love and amazing grace. Are you living your life as a harbinger of doom and gloom? Or are you living as a visible, tangible reflection of what you believe or say you believe, the unconditional love of God and amazing grace of Jesus Christ? Because my friends, Jesus doesn't come to scare the hell out of us. Jesus doesn't come to scare the hell out of us. Jesus comes to challenge and cast out every power that prevents us from living fully and freely as human beings created in God's image so that together we can storm the gates of hell in Christ's name. All for the sake of sharing the kingdom of God with others. Change is coming, my friends. Change is coming for the word of the gospel continues to spread The reign of God is on the move with no signs of stopping. The love of Christ, as we know, is more than conquering. The grace of Jesus, as we see here, is transforming. It can transform death into life. And in this story, we discover a foothold being made, not just in one life, but here the groundwork being laid for the reclamation and restoration of an entire town. And in that, in that, is the foreshadowing of what God promises, his redemption and renewal of all the nations of the world. As my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.